Welcome to the information operation while we, where we try to tell the American people really what's happening uh, with this massive military-grade PSYOP that's going on against the population. Today we have Rich Higgins, who has a, a multi-decade career uh, as an Army officer uh, in the Pentagon and then a defense contractor and then finally with the National Security Council where he was an advisor to President Trump. He was fired uh, a few years into that uh, for writing a memo where he outlined the sedition and and the coup that was going on against the president. Here's the book, by the way, the memo. We'll get into that a lot. Welcome, Rich. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. <laughs> no worries. So, uh, you know, I I found your book, you know, has, has some somewhat similar background, very concise, and it's it kind of really told in a in, in a quick read what we all have been feeling for a long time, what's been happening inside and outside of of government, the media, you know, education, et cetera. I, I feel like it's all coordinated and and really an information operation is why we started this show. But if you could give us kind of an overview of your career and, and what you what got you to this point, and you do a good job of it in the book, but maybe it'll entice our readers to, to go pick it up. Uh, yeah, look, uh, I really appreciate you bringing me here today. And, uh, you know, the this is my first time ever writing a book. You know, I, I'm, I'm probably like yourself, you know, it's, mm -hmm. there's kind of an adjustment period of becoming kind of more public with our experiences, right? It's, it's this is true. I'm, I'm still getting used to that. So if I, if I'm, if I'm reluctant in some areas, you understand why. Completely. But uh, in a yeah, in a nutshell, uh, I was an Army EOD officer, um, uh, actually a non-commissioned officer when I first mm -hmm. first served. Ended up leaving the Army in 2000. Went to work for the Justice Department. All this is laid out inside the book. Uh, ended up uh, responding to the 9/11 attacks uh, in New York City the day after. Um, wanted to get back into the fight, ended up in the Defense Department working inside uh, the counterterrorism tech black ops world for about mm -hmm. 10 years. And, uh, you know, the, the thing I, I'm trying to tell in the book is, uh, you know, and I, I titled it the memo because, you know, having supported Trump in the 2016 campaign, uh, I wanted to uh, I wanted to give people um, a picture of how somebody who kind of comes from the national security community uh, of the deep state, if you will. Yeah. How does somebody how does somebody that comes from that community come to support a Donald Trump? Right. And uh, what was it about Donald Trump that that spoke to something that I'd seen that I'd experienced? And, and candidly, uh, you know, you get down into the ranks of the military. There's a lot of people that support the man. And I, I, I was trying to I was trying to give voice to some of that. Um, and so, you know, and, and when you're reading the book, I think what I want people to, to take away from it isn't it isn't a look what I did book at all. Uh, the book was really a, a labor of love because I think I wanted to use my story to tell all of our story. You know, why would a veteran who's a MAGA guy yeah. um, back this Donald Trump, this businessman from Queens, right? Right. And uh, I, I, I think that, <laughs> yeah, the blue collar billionaire and you see yeah. the, you know, I could have written a really technical book about, you know, special operations and black ops. It's not that. Uh, I, I wrote it purposefully in a way that I hope is accessible, not just to veterans, although veterans and police officers, I'm sure will enjoy it. It's written for the general public and for people who are trying to understand what is going on in our country today. Yeah, uh, as I said, it, it's I, uh, I know I have and a lot of my friends have had just this feeling for some time that something is happening and it, it's really only come, I guess, to fruition in the last six months to a year where you, you really see all the pieces put together where you, where you have, you know, what's been happening in the FBI, the, our intelligence agencies, 
the media, education, in government, the State Department. You know, we've done a lot in Ukraine and what's been going on in there with the State Department as far as supporting Soros and elsewhere. And that agenda is just fascinating and frightening. But um, so can you tell us what happened to you in the White House? Um, you know, you started seeing what was going on. I know you write in the book that you felt that some people needed to be to be removed. Uh, were you successful at that at all? And, uh, you know, how did that process play out? Well, I was successful at getting myself removed. So <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, I think you have, a, I think, yeah, you take the wins where you can get them. Yeah. Uh, I think you'll see that the, the, how the, I think the best way to explain what happened to the White House, the White House was kind of the culmination. You know, the mm -hmm. book begins with this story, right? Mm -hmm. And then it kind of cycles back to it. Right. But I think, um, Having supported the president through the campaign, um, and you know, I was one of his counterterrorism advisors. I was one of his surrogates at the Republican National Convention. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of politics and drama involved there. Where I thought things really started to come off the rails. I mean, we, you know, we saw the rush hack the election, the Hillary nonsense throughout the campaign. Right. But where it became alarming was right after uh, the election, you know, November 9th, if you will. Sure. Um, you would expect in normal times those sort of campaign shenanigans to recede. Right. And to go away yeah. uh, where this time we saw it escalating. So the transition period is really where I think I kind of cued on to something is wrong here. So a lot of that right? was planned, obviously, the Women's March and all that stuff that happened. At that right. Point. So it's it's what we saw was this coordinated, massive and, you know, you're pretty sure it's perfectly named an information yeah. operation, a counterintelligence information operation mm -hmm. that instead of uh, receding and kind of backing off, you know, accelerated and, and, and magnified, you know, as the as the preparations began for him to assume office in January. Yeah. And so, you know, I was throwing red star clusters up where I could uh, and warning, you know, various right. people around the campaign. But I think there was no context for them to understand this. This just wasn't the way things were done. I remember right. a very specific conversation I had with Jeff Sessions about this. And I said to him, sir, you know, the FBI is up to some stuff. You know, we've got these concerns. These people have gotten inside the transition. He said, oh, Rich, don't worry about that. I'm sure the FBI is all over it. And, you know, looking back they were at hindsight, you just, they were all over it. <laughs> they were running guys. it, sir. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So, yeah. so January 20th comes around and uh, he takes office. And you remember in the first couple of weeks there, you saw, you know, the telephone call with the Mexican presidents, the telephone call with the Australian presidents. And you're saying to yourself, what is going on here? And, you know, I'm hearkening back to 2002, 2003. This is the stuff we would do to Saddam Hussein, right? Right. We would right. leak telephone calls from his generals showing they were right. plotting to overthrow him, whether it was true or not. I mean, this right. is just, you know, classic deception type stuff. Right. Right. And so we we sat there and and um you have to get past that initial shock uh of what's going on around you. And uh finally, once we kind of got past that initial shock, you know, by by mid-February, General Flynn's gone. Uh you know, Ezra Cohen, as you'll see in the, the new movie that's out, Ezra Cohen finds out about all these unmasking abuses that had transpired. And it really, we really at that point dug in. We knew we were in a real fight, mm -hmm. that the presidency itself was at risk. And uh, I didn't feel like the political leadership in the National Security Council could be trusted, particularly H.R. McMaster. I thought he was a yeah. terrible choice as a national security advisor. He represented everything that the president ran against. Um, and I think... Uh, you know, we knew we couldn't go to him with this. So what I what I had done, and the reason the book is titled "The Memos," I wrote this uh, memo warning the president about the you know the uh, I'll call them the forces arrayed against them and the structure of 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 um, 
I'll call it the order of battle of what those forces were trying to accomplish, who was behind it, why they were behind it. And I tried to do it in as short and concise a way as possible. Um, you know, General McMaster got a hold of that memo at some point, And I was, you know, like I tell people all the time, my feet didn't hit the ground. You know, I was, I was swooshed off. Uh, that, that finally happened in July when they figured out it was me. Um, yeah. But, but part of the battle that went on inside the National Security Council was one where we had, uh, you know, in normal times, I think you would see this, you would have a kind of a peaceful transition within the national security community itself. But foreign policy had been at the absolute forefront of, of the president's campaign in 2016, where, you know, we were going into year 15 in Afghanistan, you know, right. where, you know, these endless war against ISIS that just goes on and on and on in Syria. Um, you know, a, uh, a, a ostrich strategy of dealing with the, the Chinese in terms of their information warfare and uh, their, their non-kinetic warfare, right? Yeah. Uh, and so the president was, he was battling these institutional norms. And what I saw happening, and this isn't necessarily a, a you know, I'm not trying to knock on H.R. McMaster, and, and the same is true for uh, John Bolton. They thought their job was to tell the president what these institutions would do. Mm -hmm. All right, we see that now with General Milley. Mm -hmm. And my understanding of the National Security Council, and General Keith Kellogg said this often, remember, you staff the president. He is right. your boss. Right, right. And he's, he's so your job too. was... <laughs> exactly. He is he is the you know, our job is to tell the institutions what he wants to do. Exactly. Not the yeah. other way around. So the, the communications pathway had been inverted through this quote unquote interagency process. Uh, yeah. and everybody talks about the process. You know, talk about a statist term, right? The process. It sounds like something right out of 1984 Moscow. You oh, will yeah. follow the process, comrade. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so here 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 we are, um, you know, with um, overt uh, subversion taking place, uh, files going missing, meetings being subverted, uh, documents missing, telephone calls leaking. Mm -hmm. Clearly, uh, we had you know we had crossed the Rubicon. Yeah, definitely. So you you talk in the book about how McMaster was really pushing this Islamic uh, is a religion of peace issue. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? It wasn't just him, obviously, but it's it's permeated the whole. The military, I know for sure, and, and the State Department as well. Yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say I'll tell you flat out this yeah. this and this really bothers me. Okay, and it's mm -hmm. it goes to the immaturity. Uh, there's an immaturity that that comes with these leftist multiculturalist ideas. Right. Uh, I have a lot of Muslim friends. I have yeah. a lot of Muslim friends in Iraq and Afghanistan and yeah. other places. Yeah. And one of the things they like about me is that I actually take the time to learn the rules. Right. Because once you know the rules and their worldview, they can speak more candidly to you. What are they supposed sure. to be saying, not saying? When are they breaking their rules? When are they not breaking the rules? Right. When are you going to are you going to uh, betray their confidences? Right. And so our ignorance of Islam, uh, it shows. I mean, there, there are there are fourteen hundred years of Islamic history to study. OK, much of it in conflict with the West and Western mm -hmm. civilization. My point was always inside the community. Just don't go blindly into this. Right. And, you know, you look back and, and uh, the colonial countries, especially France, uh, which had, a, a, you know, a tremendous amount of experience in dealing with the Middle East, right? With the Ottomans, dealing with mm -hmm. North Africa. Uh, you know, Chirac, Chirac was warning us back in 2003, you're going to go there and turn it into a democracy. You do realize it's an Islamic country, right? <laughs> and we just, you know, we made fun of them and we said freedom fries and, 
you know, some of our great scholars. Holding up the fingers, all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. And and then so then you had like great American scholars from places like Harvard, Samuel Huntington. I mean, this guy was a, you know, a genius in many respects. He was immediately dismissed and taken off the board because he didn't comport with the politically correct narrative. Now, H.R. McMaster just fell right into that same old rubric, right? Yeah. Uh, For whatever reason, I don't want to assess his motives, but when you are when you are willing to strategically blind yourself like that, um, you deserve what happens. Well, it's kind of an intellectual dishonesty. I mean, that's the way I put it when exactly. I talk to people on the left. I mean, it's will, willful, of course. Um, but what, tell me about Sessions. I mean, what, what do you think his motivations were? You were close to him at that point. Um, a lot of people think he was a, a bad actor. Others think he was just you know, not smart enough. I mean, wh- where do you put him in that whole, that whole charade? As far as I think he was a great. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I think I think I'm a little bit more um, I'm a little bit more defensive of him only insofar Mm -hmm. as he was one of the first people that brought me into the campaign Mm -hmm. and his staff. Mm -hmm. And uh, my my read on him is that he wasn't a bad guy. He was a good senator. He he invaded Omaha Beach with a lawn chair and a cooler. Okay. He had no idea what he was going into. Um, in That's normal times, he in in normal times he would have had a difficult time bringing the bureaucracy, you know, bringing the bureaucracy to heel. He just had no experience managing a you know a bureaucracy with tens of thousands of people and massive institutional interests and tremendous power. Right. Yeah. Um, so he in normal times would have had a hard time. In this, you know, he he had his Bud Light. And his lawn chair and his umbrella, walking up Omaha Beach, beach into an MG42 nest, right? And then so in the German Yeah, it's just abs- absolutely. And yeah. uh, I think, all, and candidly, in his defense, and uh, General Flynn, I think as well, and uh, and all of us, we were all in over our head. Yeah, none of us anticipated what we walked into. It took and a while for everybody to figure it out. I think. Candidly, I told I told mm-hmm. the president this, and I'll tell you this: um, his decision to fire Comey was decisive. It's the only thing that saved his presidency, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And people will say, "Oh no, that's how the special the special counsel would have the special counsel was a contingency operation for them. Right. They never wanted to have to do it. It forced their hand, and they all got in the boat because they still thought they were going to pull it out, which is why Weissman was really running the show. I think um, history is going to be really unkind to these people. Uh, I, I think these these coosters, I like to call them the coosters, but yeah. you know, team coup, if you will, uh, history is going to turn them to stone for what they did. I think you're right. Um, and I, I agreed with another thing in your book where you said that the, the Trump's hiring process was his one Achilles heel that really hurt him for the first three, four years of the, of the first term. Um, yeah, do, you look, that, I mean, do you see that changing now as we absolutely has you know, changed. Yeah. You know, absolutely, it's changed. Johnny McEntee is, uh, people people ding on him because he's young, mm-hmm. but he's 100% MAGA. He understands the issues of the past. He's still learning kind of some of the institutional nuances, mm-hmm. but he has uh, he has figured out, I think, the vetting process by which you can uh, assess someone's, you know, not, not necessarily fidelity to the president, okay? Fidelity to the Constitution, the rule of law, doing the right thing, getting the mission right. right. 
I, I think the, the media the media likes to to castigate MAGA people as sort of Trump sycophants or something, but that's not actually the case. Most of us just want to do the right thing, do the mission, get the job done. You know, self reliance, independence, all those American kind of principles. Believe in the agenda. Johnny Refl yeah, yeah, Johnny reflects that. What I thought, yeah. what I think happened initially is. You know, the president's a businessman, a real estate guy from Queens, okay? Yeah. He is uh, he is walking into an organization. I mean, what are there, three and a half million employees of the federal government worldwide? I mean, it's just yeah. mind-boggling. Yeah. And the scale of it, he was really dependent upon finding help. But the guy, I mean, and, and um, the guy I think who nailed it right off the bat was uh, Steve Bannon uh, yeah. at CPAC in 2017, where he said, the staff, you know, the staffing and the decision to rely on the Republican National Committee to help staff the administration was the original sin of the administration. It infected everything else, yeah. and I think uh, he has learned that lesson. Uh, but politics is what it is. I mean, it's it's contact sport. You know, here he is, a businessman. He thinks, okay, I'm the president now. I can go be the president. Look, you're the president. You get to celebrate your reelection for about ten minutes or your election for ten minutes. And then you're right back into the political fight. Right. And I, don't think he, I don't think he fully comprehended just how hard of a contact sport it really is. But you think he's there now? Oh, well. absolutely. He's there now. Yeah. Okay. You know, both of us were former military officers. I take offense to what I see happening in the U.S. military. You know, you still have a lot of this critical race theory being taught. Uh, you have a lot of the generals during the Obama administration were actually purged. You know, uh, General Ham in, in Africa after the Benghazi incident was one example. Uh, and now you see uh, Secretary of Defense Esper and General Milley, the Joint Chief, Joint Chairman, openly defying the president just recently, multiple times in a row. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? It's shocking to me and offensive. Uh. I think that we've reached a point, you know, where um, much like we have to ask ourselves, you know, when the FBI was spying on the president-elect and then the president, you know, and trying to remove him from office, on whose behalf were they working, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, this is where I'm at with Esper and Millie, right? On yeah. whose behalf are they actually working, right? Yeah. I mean, the American people put this president in office for a reason. One of them was to get us out of Afghanistan. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, very clearly was one of them. And yet here we are uh, four years into his administration and uh, he's still struggling to get that done. You know, and, and in the world you and I occupied, the commander in chief said it happened. It happened. Period. Exactly. Instantly. Exactly. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And um, it's a, it's just, I think it goes to um, the very deep state culture. I hate that term, by the way, it's so conspiratorial, right? It just sounds conspiracy, the deep state. It's just, yeah. Yeah. but it, it really is just, it's the bureaucracy operating without a rudder. I mean, that's that's what you're talking. It just does what it wants. It floats around in this ocean of self-interest, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And and so my my question is, who is Millie going to General Millie, General Millie? How is he? How and who is he going to be going to work for when he resigns? Okay. Mm -hmm. And the same thing for Esper. I mean, what what is the post? service motivation that drives these individuals. And I think if you look there, you'll find out what's really what's really feeding this beast. Interesting. I think Trump's made it clear Esper is, doesn't have long to go. I haven't heard him really discuss Millie specifically, but uh, I just find it shocking. But I, I think you've hit it right on the point there. 
Who, who is there anyone else that you think in the administration you may not want to say it that needs to be gone, if you will? Is anyone else obviously uh, I, can, president? I can I can avoid the political uh, landmine by just saying I think they need to do a complete institutional reset. Yeah, I would ask for everybody's resignation. Uh, this is I mean, this is not uncommon, right? It's just a courtesy. We want a courtesy resignation from everybody and then we're going to reassess. Right. Uh, right. I would really like to see the president take, um, you know, I'll call it institutional restoration and make that one of his uh, flagship efforts for a second term. Um, there are some institutions that probably need to be either completely reset or just to go away and be rebuilt. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there are other institutions that I think are easily salvageable, provided a correct change in leadership. I put the Defense Department in that category. Uh, it needs to be re-incentivized. The good thing about mm -hmm. the Defense Department is you fire a couple guys for the you know for for a reason. Everybody else gets the message real quick, very quickly. And, uh, and I think that we you know we can start there and build out. But the the idea and one of the things that scares me more than anything else that we see going on right now is there's this institutional. Um, I'll call it indifference. Uh, mm -hmm. It may be more devious than that or, or um, hostile than that, but I'll call it institutional indifference to the fact that you have these Marxist ideologies just, yes. you know, just seeping their way into these institutions. And they have been for 25, 30 years in many respects. But those things are now come to a head and uh, they've, been, they've been just so uh, deleterious to our overall capability. What you see is what I would call the citadels of Western civilization, the citadels of the Republic, the CIA, mm -hmm. the FBI, the Defense Department. I mean, if these institutions aren't safe, then none of us are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really crazy. So, uh, you know, I, I have been in the, of the opinion over the last year that it was very obvious, uh, you know, late last year after impeachment, you had a roaring economy, the president was on his way to re-election, unemployment for you know minorities was at record lows, incomes were rising, uh, people were very optimistic. And then we had this uh, pandemic. I, I don't believe in coincidences, and I just feel that that was too big of a coincidence. Uh, and then we have yesterday, two virus manufacturers halt their, you know, their trials three weeks before the election on the same day. I find all this fascinating, and, and to me, I just don't buy it. I mean, what are your thoughts? I, I think China was involved. I think they released it on purpose. Uh, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about China. I think mm -hmm. um, in May, many people don't know this, in May of 2019, China declared people's war against the United States. Mm -hmm. And um, most of our, you know, most of our strategists, because they don't understand, you know, we all in the West learn Clausewitz, right? right. Clausewitz is like, you know, for anybody who's ever been in the military, they can quote Clausewitz left and right. We've all read on war. Um, yeah. But we don't read Mao in the same way. Mm -hmm. um, and Mao is 10 times the strategist Clausewitz was. I mean, the, the guy unified China, okay? Mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. the, he understands warfare as the continuum of politics, but he has actually done it, all right? And I think... When, when I look at China, um, what I saw happening in the Bush years and the Obama years was this kind of collective indifference to the potential threat that they represented, right? Napoleon used to say, when China awakens, the world will tremble. And beginning in 2001 with the, you know, the 
reintegration of China into the global economy, you know, giving them a favored nation status. We saw the Chinese took advantage of that and they authored several plans, China 2025, China mm -hmm. 2049, and then most importantly, the One Belt, One Road effort. And this One Belt, One Road effort is, um, you know, it's the, it's the, uh, the synchronon, it's the raison d'etre. It explains so much of what we see going on in the world today because the international bankers, the central bankers have decided that the unification of the Eurasian landmass is central to their emergent markets, right? And we saw this in the Trump, in the, in the uh, excuse me, in the Obama years, they would talk about this uh, concept of managed decline, right? Mm -hmm. It was the managed decline. It was the age of China was coming. Well, Trump was elected to stop that. Right. And so managed decline came off the table and what took its place? How about just decline? So once they stopped being able to make money off of us because the president was implementing smarter trade policies, they became overtly hostile. And what scares me is that the Chinese communist ideology is aligned, has aligned itself with the Islamist ideology because they recognize that we are A, blind, B, the Democratic Party has embraced both of those hostile ideologies, yes. and C, the money is behind them. Right, the money is back in their side. We we can't even have the Republican Congress uh, or, or the the uh, Republican Senate, uh, you know, put forward a referendum condemning Antifa. Antifa yeah. still isn't even designated a terrorist organization. Right. I mean, think about the amount of money that must be behind Antifa to prevent that from happening. Not to mention the fact that many of these Democrat politicians' children are members of Antifa, to include Tim Kaine. Okay, I mean that's where we're at. Yeah. Um, and so. When I think about China, that May 2019 declaration, you had the impeachment beginning. We know that they allowed travel out of Wuhan intentionally. Mm -hmm. And one of the other things that's always kind of come to mind, and I've questioned openly on Twitter in the past, is if you were going to do a bio, this is the problem for the Chinese, right, is to explain this away. If you were going to do a bioweapon attack against the mm -hmm. United States, our policy of a bioweapon attack retaliation was nuclear. That yeah. was our deterrence policy. Yeah. So you'd have to make it look like an accident. WMD, sure. Right? You'd have to make yeah. it look like an accident in order yeah. to release it. Yeah. So this is the great conundrum that the Chinese really ought to open their books on, right? I mean, this this is the the danger of that sort of a deterrence policy in the first place. And then, you know, we all know that, and, and for those of you who are interested in the national security side, you can go out and do some research on this. Lieberman, the guy who was doing the research at Harvard um, that was working with the Chinese and the two Chinese who were arrested at Boston's Logan Airport, they were looking at uh, the development of nano payloads for embedding inside of coronavirus as a, as a tailored weapon system mm -hmm. uh, or as a delivery system for payloads that could be virally distributed inside the body, perhaps even targeting individual organs. This is the stuff of nightmares. Of okay, yeah. And um, our national security community has really kind of played, you know, again, kind of short shrift on that stuff. We, we need to reinvigorate. Uh, that particular part of our defense portfolio to, you know, because the, you know, a threat of uh, the threat has changed. They're willing to uh, use it. And absolutely. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying that this was for sure a bioweapon attack. I'm saying the possibility even today remains. Yeah. And so um, going forward, I think, you know, when you think about, when you think about these ideological threats confronting us, I'm, I'm a big believer in the, you know, and you're a military guy. I'm a big believer in the strategic defensive. Sure. I think we need to focus on our own house and getting it in order and um, failing to do that. Right. Failing to do that, everything else doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, and I'd really like to see the president and, and his, his 
because he is going to be reelected, his new administration uh, really focus on the getting the domestic part right and beginning to to wrest the country away from these you know these communist uh, idiots who've, who've you know taken over the Democrat Party and are infecting our our you know our children. Well, they have to be confronted. I, I happen to think that uh, their economy is not as strong as they think it is. You know, I was a bond trader for a couple decades, and and I feel that their debt is massive, and that's one reason they were incentivized to, to do something like this to because they knew if Trump was reelected, you know, and the tariffs would continue that they're in real trouble. They can't build cities fast enough to keep their people working. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a house of cards. Uh, so speaking of the election and the reason I started this show is, is there is obviously some type of coordinated information operation as we've talked about. Uh, how does the right go after this machine, this cabal, this, uh, people have to go to jail, obviously. I think your point of uh, consequences for behavior needs to happen. And what's coming out of DOJ is not real, you know, it doesn't give you warm and fuzzies on, on that happening, actually. Yeah, look, I, I think I, I'm, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a bar Durham naysayer. Mm -hmm. uh, I just, you know, I, I, as somebody who's worked inside the community for a long mm -hmm. time, you know, mainly on the counterterrorism side, I recognize these things are slow, yeah. like just brutally slow. Like doing good indictments takes time. And right. The scale of what Durham has been asked to investigate is massive. The it's reason I still believe in it is, I, yeah, right, right, right. The, but the scale of it is, is man, I mean, it touches all the intelligence agencies. Mm -hmm. It touches the Defense Department. It touches pol you know, pol politicians. I mean, it's just mm -hmm. big. Um, if there were ever a case for a special counsel, this was probably one of them. Mm -hmm. But we've had, you know, we had special counsel fatigue by this point, right? Yeah, right. And uh, I think what you're going to see is we won't get everything we want. You know, we're we're, we're not going to see everything that we want. I think we're going to see enough to know that you know people will have paid, you know, at, at some degree for what they did. Mm -hmm. They're already paying in the public sphere, certainly. I think you're right. uh, and and I think I think you know I, I'm a I'm. I'm a, I'm, you know, I'm a believer. I think that history, though, is going to really judge these characters, right? Um, they're going to be, they're going to be, fro you know, Andrew McCabe will be frozen in history right there along Benedict Arnold, right? Right there next to Benedict Arnold. I mean, it's that, it's that level of betrayal. And what's amazing to me is they're so tone deaf um, as to their own uh, malfeasance and corruption that, that, they still are in this act of uh, disgusting self-justification that makes it hard to watch them, right? I mean, the that's, I, you know? Yeah, right. It's, it's amazing to see. True. Yeah, I, I mean, they, I agree. Yeah, it's. So to wrap up, um, I have one more point. I, I'm really concerned also about our service academies, and I, I keep telling myself <clears throat> we can try to deal with this, but still today it is critical race theory, social justice, cultural Marxism, destroying the institutions, you know, reducing the level of hardship so that you don't produce really, you know, people who can get through tough times. Um, I'm hopeful that in the second term that Trump has the bandwidth to deal with that or someone in DOD. Um, do you feel that's something that can be addressed or, or it's, it's a little bit tough because it's education, but. 
Uh, I think it's imperative that it get mm -hmm. addressed. Mm -hmm. um, it's not unique to the service academies. It's throughout yeah. the joint professional military education environment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, we remember a couple of years ago where you had the guy at West Point caught, you know, he yeah. wearing the Che um, shirt, right? He wasn't the only one. Yeah. Uh, and the professors knew and the senior officers knew. And again, it go, the, the military is probably the easiest to fix because the cultural mm -hmm. accountability model there is very quick acting, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You fire a couple of leaders for doing the wrong thing. Everybody else gets the message real quick. Yeah. And, um, you know, this administration's moved to kind of address the threat of communism. We, we're going to we have a massive educational mission to kind of, you know, get people familiar with the precepts. Again, I was very lucky. I came into the military right about the time that the Cold War guys were retiring. And right. I took the time to just sit and listen to them, uh, read the books they passed me, read the Matrokin archives, read the sword and the shield, you know, read, read the books about the Cold War to understand it and to get into the ideology. Not that I'm an expert on it, but I know, I know when I hear truth mm -hmm. and, um, that's really what it requires. I think as far as the service academies go, you know, we, I think the, I think the Naval Academy, West Point, I know you're an Air Force Academy mm -hmm. grad. I think, you know, one of the things that the, maybe the president needs to tell his post Esper SecDef is I want you to make a concerted effort to give me an officer corps that's worthy of the Republic. Yeah. And, and that starts with understanding this two things. Number one is they need to understand that the constitution is simply the legal means but the actual strategic idea, the idea we're defending is, em is embodied in that declaration. And you need to understand the strategic nature of your oath. And that is something so many of our officers have lost sight of. Well put, Rich, thank you. So again, this is the memo. Uh, Rich, where's the best place to get the book? Uh, can they get signed copies? You can get it. It, you can get it at Rich Higgins. The, you can get it at richhigginsthememo.com. If you want to sign a copy, just throw in a request there. I'm happy to do it. Uh, if uh, you're partial to spending money with Jeff Bezos, you can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, The Usual Suspects. Please follow me uh, on Twitter at Rich Higgins underscore DC at Rich Higgins underscore DC. Uh, you know, I, I'm pretty active on there lately, sometimes more than others, but uh, going into this election cycle and everything we're expecting to see, I'm, I'm going to be out there throwing some insights uh, from a political warfare, special warfare prism, and I hope people can pick okay. something up there. What can we expect to see of you in the future? Uh, God knows. <laughs> okay, All right, Rich. Uh, thanks for joining us on Information Operation, and maybe we can have you back on down the road. Thanks for having me. All right, take care.